Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we'll be exploring some different portraits of Abraham Lincoln. I ran across an article published on the Atlas Obscura website recently and wanted to share it and a few other tidbits on one of my favorite historical figures. This first article is called The Great Links Taken to Make Abraham Lincoln Look Good in Portraits by Michael Waters. Abraham Lincoln had a problem. During his 1860 campaign as a Republican candidate for the American presidency, in an era after the birth of the photograph but before its widespread dissemination in the media, many of the country's country's citizens could only guess at what he looked like. Rumors of his ugliness proliferated. The North Carolina newspaper, the Newborn Weekly Progress, wrote that Lincoln was coarse, vulgar, and uneducated, while the Houston Telegraph opined that he was the leanest, lankiest, most ungainly, mass of legs, arms, and hatchet face ever strung upon a single frame. He has the most unwarrantably abused the privilege which all politicians have of being ugly. One woman, Mary Boykin, claimed Lincoln was grotesque in appearance, the kind who were always at the corner stores, sitting on boxes, whittling sticks and telling stories as funny as they are vulgar. In fact, many Democrats sang an anti-Lincoln rallying cry that concluded with, We beg and pray you, don't for God's sake show his picture. Though the rumors of Lincoln's ugliness stayed mostly within Democratic circles, Lincoln was not anxious to let the idea spread. So he turned to Matthew Brady, a well-known photographer with a studio on Pennsylvania Avenue. In many ways, Brady was perfect. Though Brady himself had bad vision and did not take many of his own photos, he conceptualized images, arranged the sitters, and oversaw the production of pictures. Plus, according to the New York Times, Brady was not averse to certain forms of retouching. In February 1860, just before Lincoln gave the Cooper Union address that would help secure him the Republican presidential nomination, Brady had Lincoln pose for what would soon become one of the first widely disseminated photographs of the future president. The background is bare. Lincoln places his hand on two books, his eyes on the viewer. Behind him is a column and a neutrally colored wall. But to quash once and for all the rumors of Lincoln's ugliness, Brady added some special effects. He focused excessive amounts of light on Lincoln's face in order to distract from his gangly frame. He had the future president curl up his fingers so that their remarkable length would go unnoticed. Brady even artificially enlarged Lincoln's collar so that his neck would look more proportional. The neck critique apparently was a popular attack line on Lincoln's appearance. After attending Lincoln's inauguration in 1861, one Virginia man wrote that Lincoln is a much better looking man than he has represented in the papers to be, not being so extraordinarily tall, nor having such a very long neck either. Soon after it was taken, the Brady photo was plastered across American newspapers, including Harper's Weekly, and featured on numerous postcards. In some reproductions, artists tinkered further with Brady's creation. Apparently, subsequent versions of this famous portrait also show that artists smoothed Lincoln's hair and subtly refined his features. In 
Though this kind of tinkering is familiar today, with public figures enduring intense pressure to look their best at all times, it was quite new in 1860. Regardless, the photo received such a rapturous reception that Lincoln later said, Brady and the Cooper Institute made me president. After his election, Lincoln kept returning to Brady for portraits. In all, Brady produced more than 30, including the images that are now memorialized on the penny and the $5 bill. But Brady's tweaks of Lincoln's appearance were not the most conspicuous edits made to his photographs. After Lincoln's assassination, there was a dearth of heroic-style pictures of the president, so one portrait painter got creative. On a print of the late president, Thomas Hicks superimposed Lincoln's head onto the body of John C. Calhoun, the virulent racist and slavery proponent who did not exactly see eye-to-eye -eye with the 16th president. Engraver A.H. Ritchie created the Calhoun image in 1852. The original included the words strict constitution, free trade, and the sovereignty of the states on the desk papers. But when it was altered to feature Lincoln instead, the words changed to constitution, union, and proclamation of freedom. For a century, no one noticed. The print was only recently revealed to have been faked. Photojournalist Stéphane Laurent was compiling photos of Lincoln for his book, Lincoln, A Picture Story of His Life, first published in 1957, then revised in 1969, when he discovered something odd. In the Hicks print, Lincoln's mole was on the wrong side of his face. After some investigation, he realized that Lincoln's face in the print exactly matched his face in Brady's $5 bill photo, except in the print, Lincoln's face was flipped, making Lincoln's mole show up on the opposite side. Apparently, Hicks hadn't noticed this discrepancy when superimposing the picture onto Calhoun's body. But this high-profile precursor to a Photoshop edit was not only used on photos of Lincoln. Brady often altered images. For a group photo of General Wil William Sherman's staff, he edited in a member who couldn't attend. In fact, Brady even asked soldiers to pretend they were dead for some of his, some, some of his famous Civil War portraits. At least Lincoln, despite all of the posing Brady had him do, never had to lie on a battlefield and feign death for the sake of a Kodak moment. I find that really interesting uh, how even 150 years ago, uh, public perception could be so affected by a person's appearance. I had never heard the story about this particular case of early Photoshop involving the president, but it did remind me of another story I'd come across recently. This article is from the HistoryNet website. A woman of dark mystery appeared at William Mumler's Boston studio in 1860, 1871 to have her photograph taken. Attired in mourning, she gave the well-known photographer a false name and kept her face concealed behind a black veil. I requested her to be seated, went into, my, went into my darkroom and coated a plate, Mumler said four years later in his autobiography. When I came out, I found her seated with her veil still over her face. I asked if she intended to have her picture taken with her veil. She replied, when you are ready, I will remove it. She was used to dealing with mediums and knew how to prevent their tricks. Her dead husband had appeared to her at a seance while she was in Boston, and now she wanted her picture with him. Mumler would later claim that he did not recognize her until the negative had been developed, which revealed 
Mary Todd Lincoln embraced by the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. Shattered by her husband's assassination and the loss of three of her four sons, dead before their 18th birthdays, Mary Lincoln cleaved to spiritualism, the belief that spirits of the dead can be contacted through mediums. She must have been satisfied, even consoled by the image, but to the objective eye, this photograph of Mary Lincoln is a touching, if sadly preposterous, fake. Nonetheless, it was Mumler's most famous portrait. Mumler began his career in Boston peddling his expertise as a medium for taking spirit photographs, part of the growing phenomenon of spiritual manifestations introduced in 1848 by the Fox Sisters of Hydesville, New York. Their seances, with attendant spirit wrappings and table tippings, caused a sensation that had spread across the country. Boston, combining traditions of intellectual dissent with enthusiasm for transcendental, transcendental philosophies, became a quasi-capital for the movement and was attracting spiritualists from all over to the mysterious world of the higher plane. Coming as it did with the new era of scientific technology, the camera and photography, as well as electricity and the telegraph, people were, searing, people were seeing and hearing the unexplainable. America in the 1860s was a mournful country, immersed in civil war and disease. Death leached into everything. The filthy water, the consumptive air, the blood-soaked battlefields of the South. Cameramen such as Matthew Brady were on the battlefields too, recording sadness and loss in black and white. Heartbroken survivors, desperate for tokens of enduring life, clutched at any straw of hope. And a spirit photograph was that straw painted to a fine, bright shine. William Mumler's spirit photographs stand out as one of the grand hoaxes of the period. His misguided craft, the pretended ability to capture the shadows of the dead on photographic negatives, puts him in the same Barnum Circus arena as the other tricksters, hucksters, and confidence men of mid-19th century America. Over nearly three decades, Mumler's occult artistry made him wealthy and famous, and, as is the destiny of these affairs, it nearly destroyed him. Like many hoaxes, the story of spirit photography begins with an accident and a joke. In 1861, Mumler was a 29-year-old jewelry engraver living in Boston who enjoyed experimenting with the nascent science of photography. In his autobiography, The Personal Experiences of William H. Mumler in Spirit Photography, Mumler explained that one day, while developing a self-portrait, he noticed the mysterious form of a young girl on the negative. Mumler printed this curiosity and showed it around to friends, telling them it looked like a dead cousin. Being of a jovial disposition, always ready for a joke, Mumler said he decided to jest with a spiritualist friend and pretend that his picture was a genuine impression from the world beyond. The friend fell for the gag. Soon Mumler and his spirit extra circulated through the city, while news that the first spirit photograph had been taken appeared in the Banner of Light and other spiritualist newspapers. The spirit cousin in all likelihood was no more than the residue of an earlier negative made with the same plate, but it quickly ripened into a revelation, with Mumler, the mischievous jeweler, heralded as the oracle of the camera. Mumler soon went into the photography business full-time and opened his first studio on Washington Street in Boston. In 
His wife, Hannah, or an assistant, greeted his clients on arrival, and after some preliminary chit-chat, when the clients often and helpfully discussed the spirits they wished to appear, they went in for the sitting. Hannah had a reputation as a clairvoyant, and she often commented about the spirits that surrounded her husband's clients. For Mumler's, for Mumler's part, he was as passive as a vacuum tube, he explained, that glows when an electrical current is run through it, a force he then channeled into the camera. It was as simple as that. His fees were extravagant. At the height of his success, Mumler charged $10 for a dozen photographs, or five times the going rate, with no guarantee that any spirit extras would appear. Often they did not, and clients had to make repeated trips to Mumler's studio before they were blessed with a presence. The spirits, Mumler explained by way of justifying his price, did not like the throng. Boston's other photographers were less enchanted with Mumler the medium. James Black, famous for his aerial views of the city, assumed Mumler cheated, and he thought he knew how. Black bet Mumler $50 that he could catch him at it. He examined Mumler's camera, plate, and processing system, and even went into the darkroom with him. In his autobiography, Mumler described Black's astounding disbelief when a ghost-like image emerged on the negative. Mr. B, watching with wonder-stricken eyes, exclaimed, My God, is it possible? The technical question of how Mumler's pictures were made was the subject of great speculation. In an 1863 essay for Atlantic Monthly, Oliver Wendell Holmes, himself an avid photographer, not only gave step-by-step -step instructions on how to ex obtain a double exposure, an appropriate background for these pictures is a view of the asylum for feeble-minded persons, and possibly if the penitentiary could be introduced, the hint would be salutary, but also contemplated the popularity of Mumler's pictures. Mrs. Brown, for instance, has lost her infant and wishes to have its spirit portrait taken, Holmes wrote. It is enough for the poor mother, whose eyes are blinded with tears, that she sees a print of drapery like an infant's dress, and a rounded something like a foggy dumpling which will stand for her face. Holmes, a Bostonian and an intimate of Black, almost certainly had Mumler's dubious shapes in mind when he penned these lines. While many of Mumler's spirits indeed fail the foggy dumpling test, they are in general less theatrical than the sheet-draped stage spooks that haunt most 19th century spirit pictures. Instead, the apparitions in a Mumler photograph have human features, silky gestures, and misty entwining forms, up to the point where they melt away. They are spirits, not ghosts, and in that gentle difference lay the secret of Mumler's success. Mumler depicted what spiritualists believed that the afterlife was a paradise, a summerland with its own schools, farms, and intimate relationships, exalted and deathless. The spirits in a Mumler picture are just people, if now more radiant, right down to their coiffure, their flowers, their clinginess, and their clothes. Business in Boston fell off for Mumler, however, as his apparitions were called hoaxes. There had been censure, too. Even prominent spiritualists had been stunned to discover that some of Mumler's photographic spirits were in fact people still very much alive. Letters to newspapers in Boston publicized these double exposures, and Mumler's reputation suffered. The spirit photographer confessed nothing, but with business going bad, it was time for him to get out of town. 
Mumler relocated to New York in 1868 and found work in one of the many photographic studios clustered on Broadway. It is now some eight years since I commenced to take these remarkable pictures, and thousands bear testimony to the truthful likeness of their spirit friends they have received through my medium-mystic power, Mumler rhapsodized in a promotional pamphlet. What joy to the troubled heart, what balm to the aching breast, to know that our friends who have passed away can return and give us unmistakable evidence of a life hereafter. Mumler applied a lot of balm. By early 1869, he was the best-known practitioner of spirit photography in New York. He had taken roughly 500 photographs and bought a studio at 630 Broadway. It was there that he photographed a Wall Street financier named Charles Livermore. Livermore, himself a spiritualist, had been sent by the New York Sun as part of a team of investigators preparing a report on the photographer. Looking for the trick, he sat as still as a statue before the camera lens while Mumler counted off the seconds on his watch. With a flourish, Mumler replaced the lens cap and delicately retrieved the glass negative. In his dark closet, he floated the negative in a toxic bath to develop and fix the image. Livermore observed as his features slivered in black traces through the white collodion that waxed the negative. Then, wondrously, another form etched into the glass, this one behind him, embracing him. He had been skeptical at first, but now, as he watched Mumler's every move, he believed. Out of the emptiness, his dead wife returned to him. Her spirit seized him. Here, for all the critics and the skeptics, was the picture. Here was the proof. On March 16, 1869, another gentleman entered number 630 Broadway. He introduced himself as William Bowditch and asked Mumler for a portrait with a dead relative. When he paid for his photograph but failed to see the spirit promised him, Bowditch pulled off his own act of revelation. He was, in fact, Joseph Tooker, New York City Marshal, working undercover, the sharp end of an elaborate police sting being run against Mumler, courtesy of the office of the mayor, A. Oakley Hall. Earlier in the month, a science editor at World Newspaper had approached Mayor Hall with complaints against Mumler made by members of the photographic section of the American Institute of the City of New York, a society of reputable photographers dedicated to advancing the science of photography. Seeking to keep the medium truthful and realizing the medium's power, the society had expressed outrage against Mumler and demanded action. Tooker's men arrested Mumler on April 12th for swindling credulous persons by what he called spirit photographs, and, in a cruel stroke of irony for the world's first spirit photographer, Mumler was incarcerated in New York's most infamous prison, the Tombs. Spiritualism in court, a stupendous fraud, the alleged spirit photograph swindle. The New York papers swarmed over the news of Mumler's arrest, their sensational headlines blaring like trumpets. The intensity of the interest manifested by the public in this case has perhaps never been surpassed in reference to any criminal investigation in this city, exclaimed the New York Daily Tribune. On April 21st, Judge Joseph Dowling opened the Court of Special Sessions, the police court for the tombs, with a preliminary hearing into Mumler's case. He would listen to counsel for both sides, weigh up the evidence, and, if the facts warranted, put the case to the grand jury. 
No members of the public displayed greater interest in the trial than the many spiritualists who filled the courtroom in support of Mumler. Newspapers had a field day describing their odd demeanor and appearances. The New York Times jibed that the women, worn down in their study of ethereal essences, and the men with sickly, sentimental eyes and cavernous, lantern-jawed physiognomies, seemed to fill the room with a cold and clammy atmosphere. For the press, as for the prosecution, William Mumler would, on would be only a symbol of the trial's real accused, the modern spiritualist movement. As the spectators settled into their places, Prosecutor Elbridge T. Jerry rose and opened the trial by calling Marshall Tooker to the stand. Tooker deftly related his experience purchasing spirit photographs from Mumler, and then, apparently satisfied that Tooker's statement was definitive for the purposes of an indictment, Gary rested the prosecution. Mumler had assembled a crack defense team for the hearing, led by an aggressive lawyer named John D. Townsend. The first witnesses Townsend called were photographers, all of whom had keenly scrutinized Mumler at work in his studio without detecting any chickenery. Townsend then summoned to the stand a parade of Mumler's clients. One by one, these heart-sore people testified in defense of their oracle, clutching their spirit photographs, which were shown to the courtroom and entered into evidence. Charles Livermore testified that it was indeed his wife in, the, in his photographs, an identification with which all of his friends agreed. I went there with my eyes open, as a skeptic, Livermore said. He had tried to outwit Mumler. He made an appointment for a sitting on a Tuesday, but went on Monday, to disconcert him. I suddenly changed my position so as to, do, to defeat any arrangement he might have made. I was on the lookout all the while." The two pictures of Livermore and his ghost wife appeared in the May 8, 1869 edition of Harper's Weekly, which covered the trial and ran nine engravings of Mumler's photos on its front page. Judge John Edmonds, a former justice of the New York Supreme Court, astonished the assembled by testifying that not only could he see the dead, but he also often conversed with them during trials, when they assisted with his decisions. He told the court that he was satisfied with his pictures, as the spirits were charmingly pretty. Perhaps the most heart-rending testimonial came from Luthera Reeves, who identified the spirit in her picture as a son she had lost. Her boy, she explained, had suffered from the same curvature of the spine as the spirit. It must be him. With these witnesses, Townsend opened a gaping sinkhole at the prosecution's feet. How could Mumler be accused of cheating people who clearly claimed to see their loved ones in his, picture, in his pictures? Realizing now that the prosecution had rested too soon and could not rely solely on Tooker's testimony to prove Mumler a fraud, Prosecutor Gary reopened his, his case. Gary summoned his own battery of photographers, each of whom laboriously explained how using double exposures, costumed confederates, trick lenses, and other arcane but purely mechanical devices, Mumler created his apparitions. A transparent lie on its face declared one photographer, examining Charles Livermore's picture, explaining how Livermore cast a shadow in one direction, while his wife's spirit shadow slanted in the other, an effect which could only be achieved with two different light sources. The images must have been made separately. It was either a double exposure or a manipulated negative. And why should an ethereal vapor cast a shadow anyway? 
Phineas Taylor, P.T. Barnum, was called as a witness for the prosecution and was his own greatest exhibition. As the country's leading wizard of sham and spectacle, his appearance in the courtroom was a showstopper. A sort of expert on the artful deceptions popularly known as humbugs, Barnum had recently published an expose on spiritualism, excoriating its leading leading adherents as blasphemous mountebanks and impostors. In this same book, Barnum described his purchase some years before of spirit photographs, which he displayed in his museum. Now Barnum testified that the man he had purchased those pictures from was none other than William Mumler. In letters they exchanged, Barnum claimed Mumler had essentially confessed his pictures were fakes. Alas, Barnum said, the letters were lost when his museum burned down in 1865. Defense attorney Townsend's cross-examination of Barnum was character assassination leavened with bursts of pure farce. He is a man who smells of fraud in the very nostrils of the people of New York, Townsend said. When Barnum could not produce any of the letters he had purportedly received from Mumler, Townsend accused Barnum of lying. He also declared that Barnum, the purveyor of such dubious curiosity, curiosities as the Fiji mermaid and the woolly horse was an even greater humbugger than simple William Mumler. Barnum responded testily that he did not display anything that did not give people their money's worth four times over. As the trial twisted its way through the catacomb of fantasy and despair, Mumler remained a calm and fathomless presence in the courtroom, with a face which one could scarcely be able to believe in at first sight. On May 3rd, the photographer rose for the first time to address the court. Again, he confessed nothing. I positively assert that in taking the pictures, I have never used any trick or device or availed myself of any deception or fraud. When Mumler finished, Townsend and Gary stepped forward to give their closing remarks. Townsend spoke first, rousing himself for two hours of powerful and highly finished argument. Men like these would have hung Galileo had he lived in their day, Townsend thundered, oratorically thumping the prosecution and its witnesses. Gary Gary swatted back with a lengthened dissertation that roved through hallucinations, biblical phantoms, the heathenish nature of spiritualism, and the nine methods of faking spirits. There is no positive proof whatever of any spiritual agency in Mumler's photographs, Gary exclaimed, only evidence that certain persons believe it exists. And then, without much further ado, Judge Dowling announced his decision with a verdict fogged in ambiguity. The judge shared Gary's belief that Mumler was crooked, pronouncing himself morally convinced that Mumler had practiced fraud and deception, and then he set the photographer free. Prosecutor Gary had not pinpointed Mumler's trickery and therefore had not made his case. It was a decision that satisfied neither party. Did Judge Dowling take the easy way out with this mixed decision? Or did he take a deeper view and conclude that in matters of belief there are degrees of reality and degrees of truth, and it was not in his power to decide upon them? In any event, Mumler was released, and his comrades in the movement of the New Light rejoiced that their martyr had escaped the bonds of the tombs. Even though Mumler had garnered a certain amount of fame from the case, he left New York immediately after the trial. 
He had accumulated thousands of dollars worth of legal fees and decided to return to Boston, where he opened another studio, this time in diminished circumstances in his mother-in-law's home at 170 West Springfield Street. He continued his strange profession there, photographing believers such as Mary Todd Lincoln and providing them with dubious jewels of consolation. Mumler understood that this belief is its own fact, its own vision. That insight, beyond whatever devices he employed in the darkroom, was the most cunning tool in his trick bag of deceptions. Mumler's Lincoln image is his most reproduced photograph, and it is believed to be the last one taken of Mary before her death in 1882. Yet the former First Lady's patronage was no mark of improvement in Mumler's fortunes. He died in 1884, holding patents on a number of brilliant photographic techniques, including Mumler's process, which allowed publishers to directly reproduce photographic illustrations in newspapers, books, and so forth. Indeed, his skill as a photographer rivaled his talents as a con artist, but he was somehow still poor. In spite of it all, he maintained to the end that he was only a humble instrument for the revelation of a beautiful truth. Should there be any doubt, Mumler destroyed all of his negatives shortly before he died. William Mumler's photographs may be products of pure hoaxing, but the question of whether technology is capable of catching phantoms is still relevant. In 2003, a security camera at Hampton Court Palace, just west of London, picked up the image of a robed figure opening and closing a fire door. The enormous press generated by the event suggests the deeply enduring charm of the supernatural. Even in the modern era, an age of computer manipulation and airbrushing, there remains a willingness to believe not only in the world beyond, but also in the power of the camera's prophetic eye to reveal it. Oh, so that's quite a rabbit hole to fall down. Um, I have a couple of books that I wanted to speak about today as well. The first is called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter by Seth Graham Smith. Uh, this is the same author who wrote Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. And if you have seen either movie, I urge you not to judge the books by the movies. Um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is fairly close and faithful to the book on which it is based. However, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter is nowhere near uh, the work of art that the book itself was. Um, this author is really good at creating these worlds. Um, and his book about Abraham Lincoln in includes several photographs uh, from the Civil War that have been photoshopped and retouched to support his thesis that uh, the reason for slavery in the South was because the Southern plantation owners were vampires and used the slaves as a food source. Um, but I'm going to read you guys a bit from the beginning. In this sad world of ours, sorrow comes to all, and to the young, it comes with bitterest agony because it takes them unawares. Abraham Lincoln, in a letter to Fanny McCullough, December 23rd, 1862. The boy had been crouched so long that his legs had fallen asleep beneath him, but he dared not move now, for here in a small clearing in the frost-bitten forest were the creatures he had waited so long to see, the creatures he'd been sent to kill. 
He bit down on his lip to keep his teeth from chattering and aimed his father's flintlock rifle exactly as he'd been taught. The body, he remembered, the body, not the neck. Quietly, carefully, he pulled the hammer back and pointed the barrel at his target, a large male who'd fallen behind the others. Decades later, the boy would recall what happened next. I hesitated, not out of a conflict of conscience, but for the fear that my rifle had gotten too wet and, too wet, and thus wouldn't fire. However, this fear proved unfounded, for when I pulled the trigger, the stock hit my shoulder with such force as to knock me clean onto my back. Turkeys scattered in every direction as Abraham Lincoln, seven years old, picked himself off the snow-covered ground. Rising to his feet, he brought his fingers to the strange warmth he felt on his chin. I'd bitten my lip clean through, he wrote, but I hardly gave a holler. I was desperate to know if I had hit the poor devil or not. He had. The large bale flapped its wings wildly, pushing itself through the snow in small circles. Abe watched from a distance, afraid it might somehow rise up and tear me to pieces. The flapping of wings, the dragging of feathers through snow, these were the only sounds in the world. They were joined by the crunching beneath Abe's feet as he found his nerve and approached. The wings beat less forcefully now. It was dying. He had shot it clean through the neck. The head hung at an unnatural angle, dragged across the ground as the bird continued to thrash. The body, not the neck. With every beat of its heart, blood poured from the wound and onto the snow where it mixed with the dark droplets from Abe's bleeding lip and the tears that had already begun to fall down his face. It gasped for breath but could draw none, and its eyes wore a kind of fear I had never seen. I stood over the miserable bird for what seemed a twelve-month, pleading with God to make its wings fall silent, begging his forgiveness for so injuring a creature that had shown me no malice, presented no threat to my person or prosperity. Finally it was still, and, plucking up my courage, I dragged it through a mile of forest and laid it at my mother's feet. My head hung low, so as to hide my tears. Abraham Lincoln would never take another life, and yet he would become one of the greatest killers of the nineteenth century. The grieving boy didn't sleep a wink that night. I could think only of the injustice I had done another living thing, and the fear I had seen in its eyes as the promise of life slipped away. Abe refused to eat any part of his kill, and lived on little more than bread as his mother, father, and older sister picked the carcass clean over the next two weeks. There is no record of their reaction to this hunger strike, but it must have been seen as eccentric. After all, to willingly go without food, as a matter of principle, was a remarkable choice for anyone in those days, particularly a boy who had been born and raised on America's frontier. But then, Abe Lincoln had always been different. America was still in its infancy when the future president was born on February 12, 1809, a mere 33 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Many of the giants of the American Revolution— Robert Treat Payne, Benjamin Rush, and Samuel Chase were still alive. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson wouldn't resume their tumultuous friendship for another three years, and wouldn't die for another seventeen, incredibly, on the same day, the 4th of July. Those first American decades were ones of seemingly limitless growth and opportunity. By the time Abe Lincoln was born, residents of Boston and Philadelphia had seen their cities double in size in less than 20 years. 
New York's population had tripled in the same amount of time. The cities were becoming livelier, more prosperous. For every farmer, there are two haberdashers. For every blacksmith, an opera house, joked Washington Irving in his New York periodical, Salmagundi. But as the cities became more crowded, they became more dangerous. Like their counterparts in London, Paris, and Rome, America's city dwellers had come to expect a certain amount of crime. Theft was by far the most common offense. With no fingerprints on file or cameras to fear, thieves were limited only by their conscience and cunning. Muggings hardly warranted a mention in the local papers, unless the victim was a person of note. There's a story of an elderly widow named Agnes Pendle Brown, who lived with her longtime butler, nearly as old as she and deaf as a stone, in a three-story brick mansion on Amsterdam Avenue. On December 2nd, 1799, Agnes and her butler turned in for the night, he on the first floor, she on the third. When they awoke the next morning, every piece of furniture, every work of art, every gown, serving dish, and candlestick holder, candles included, was gone. The only things the light-footed burglars left were the beds in which Agnes and her butler slept. There was also the occasional murder. Before the Revolutionary War, homicides had been exceedingly rare in America's cities. It's impossible to provide exact numbers, but a review of three Boston newspapers between 1775 and 1780 yields mention of only 11 cases, 10 of which were promptly solved. Most of these were so-called honor killings, such as duels or family squabbles. In most cases, no charges were brought. The laws of the early 19th century were vague and, with no regular police force to speak of, loosely enforced. It's worth noting that killing a slave was not considered murder, no matter the circumstances. It was merely destruction of property. Immediately after America won its independence, something strange began to happen. The murder rate in its cities started to rise dramatically, almost overnight. Unlike the honor killings of years past, these murders seemed random, senseless. Between 1802 and 1807, there were incredible 204 unsolved homicides in New York City alone. Homicides with no witnesses, no motive, and often no discernible cause of death. Because the investigators, most of whom were untrained volunteers, kept no records, the only surviving clues come from a handful of faded newspaper articles. One in particular from the New York Spectator captures the panic that had enveloped the city by July of 1806. A Mr. Stokes of 210 10th Street happened upon the poor victim, a mulatto woman, whilst on his morning constitutional. The gentleman remarked that her eyes were wide open and her body quite stiff, as if dried in the sun. A constable by name of McGlay informed me that no blood was found near the unfortunate soul, nor on her garments, and that her only wound was a small score on the wrist. She is the 42nd to meet such an end this year. The Honorable Dewitt Clinton Mayor respectfully advises the good citizenry to prolong their vigilance until the answerable scoundrel is captured. Women and children are urged to walk with a gentleman companion, and gentlemen are urged to walk in pairs after dark. The scene was eerily similar to a dozen others reported that summer. No trauma, no blood, open eyes and rigid body the face a mask of terror. A pattern emerged among the victims. 
They were free blacks, vagrants, prostitutes, travelers, and the mentally impaired. People with little or no connection to the city, no family, and whose murders were unlikely to incite angry mobs seeking justice. And New York was hardly alone in its troubles. Similar articles filled the papers of Boston and Philadelphia that summer, and similar rumors filled the mouths of their panicked populations. There was talk of shadowy madmen, of foreign spies. There was even talk of vampires. Sinking Springs Farm was about as far from New York City as one could get in early 19th century America. Despite its name, the 300-acre farm was mostly heavily wooded land, and its rocky eastern Kentucky soil made the prospects of bumper crops unlikely at best. Thomas Lincoln, 31 years old, had acquired it for a $200 promissory note in the months before Abe was born. A carpenter by trade, Thomas hastily built a one-room cabin on his new land. It measured all of 18 by 20 feet, with a hard dirt floor that was cold to the touch year-round. When it rained, water leaked through the roof in bucketfuls. When the wind howled, drafts forced their way through countless cracks in the walls. It was in these humble circumstances, on an unseasonably mild Sunday morning, that the 16th President of the United States came into the world. It's said that he didn't cry when he was born, but that he merely stared at his mother quizzically and then smiled at her. Abe would have no memory of Sinking Springs. When he was two, a dispute arose over the deed to the land, so Thomas moved his family ten miles north to the smaller, more fertile Knob Creek Farm. Despite the much-improved soil, Thomas, who could have made a comfortable living selling corn and grain to nearby, nearby settlers, plowed less than an acre of land. He was an illiterate, indolent man who could not so much as sign his name until instructed by my mother. He had not a scrap of ambition in him, not the slightest interest in bettering his circumstances or in providing for his family beyond the barest necessities. He never planted a single row more than was needed to keep our bellies from aching, or sought a single penny more than was needed to keep the simplest clothes on our backs. It was an unduly harsh assessment written by a 41-year-old Abe on the day of his father's funeral, which he had chosen not to attend and perhaps felt a pang of guilt over. While no one would ever accuse Thomas Lincoln of being driven, he seems to have been a reliable, if not bountiful, provider. That he never abandoned his family in times of desperate hardship or, and grief, or abandoned the frontier for the comforts of city life, as many of his contemporaries did, speaks to his character— and while he didn't always understand or approve of his son's pursuits, he always permitted them eventually. However, Abe would never be able to forgive him for the tragedy that would transform both of their lives. I strongly urge you to check out Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter if you get the chance. Um, it is a wonderfully conceived novel and so well done. Uh, and if you are worrying about it being somehow disrespectful to the memory of Lincoln, I can say with full confidence that it is not. It, it really captures his spirit um, and does so in a very interesting way. Also, Edgar Allan Poe shows up, which is quite a little adventure. And if you didn't know, Abraham Lincoln was a fan of Poe's and at one time even had memorized and could recite the Raven in its entirety. 
Before I let you go, I have one more piece I'd like to share with you. I recently started a novel. This is George Saunders' first novel, although he has several other works published, um, called Lincoln in the Bardo. And this is from the inside cover. In his long-awaited first novel, American literary master George Saunders delivers his most original, transcendent, and moving work yet. Unfolding in a graveyard over the course of a single night, narrated by a dazzling chorus of voices, Lincoln and the Bardo is an experience unlike any other, for no one but Saunders could conceive it. February, 1862. The Civil War is less than one year old. The fighting has begun in earnest, and the nation has begun to realize it is in for a long, bloody struggle. Meanwhile, President Lincoln's beloved 11-year-old son, Willie, lies upstairs in the White House, gravely ill. In a matter of days, despite predictions of a recovery, Willie dies and is laid to rest in a Georgetown cemetery. My poor boy, he was too good for this earth, the president says at the time. God has called him home. Newspapers report that a grief-stricken Lincoln returns, alone, to the crept several times to hold his boy's body. From that seed of historical truth, George Saunders spins an unforgettable story of familial love and loss that breaks free of its realistic historical framework into a thrilling, supernatural realm both hilarious and terrifying. Willie Lincoln finds himself in a strange purgatory where ghosts mingle, gripe, commiserate, quarrel, and enact bizarre acts of penance. Within this transitional state, called in the Tibetan tradition the bardo, a monumental struggle erupts over young Willie's soul. Lincoln and the Bardo is an astonishing feat of imagination and a bold step forward from one of the most important and influential writers of his generation. Formally daring, generous in spirit, deeply concerned with matters of the heart, it is a testament to fiction's ability to speak honestly and powerfully to the things that really matter to us. Saunders has invented a thrilling new form that deploys a kaleidoscopic, theatrical panorama of voices, living and dead, historical and invented, to ask a timeless, profound question. How do we live and love when we know that everything we love must end? Uh, I can't think of a better explanation for that book based on what I've read so far, but I am really, really enjoying it, and I think others would as well. That is it for Blue Stocking today. As always, if you have questions or ideas or comments, please feel free to email bluestockingpod at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, www.bluestockingpod.com. Thank you.